politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, forgotten and scorned taxpayers to the one and only CR podcast here at Blaze TV on this fine Tuesday as we barrel towards Thanksgiving weekend. I think we're all looking for some time off. We're all looking for something to be thankful for. And certainly this time of year, I am thankful for all of you guys um, just uh, really sticking by me, growing this show by leaps and bounds. Now we need to grow that Liberty tree that has not been watered in a long time. But as dark and gloomy as things are, we do have an opportunity more than ever to water that tree. And I'm going to explain why. We're also going to have a special guest on today, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, one of the greatest epidemiologists in the world, who is actually a a real scientist, not a politician, and uh, we'll hear from him soon as well. But I look out throughout the landscape of this country. I was traveling yesterday again to look at some vacation homes with my dad for our great big Hurwitz vacation home to get away from tyranny, to get away from anarchy, crime where we live here in Maryland, a refuge. And I'm thinking, where is that great asylum, that refuge for civil and religious liberty? The pilgrims, they went on a very dangerous journey in those days. They suffered through disease. Yeah, disease, real disease, with a very high fatality rate, by the way. Harsh winters. But at least they were free. They understood the value of freedom. They understood the price of freedom. They understood that certain things are worth fighting for. Certain things are worth worth sacrificing for. Today we live in comfort. We just don't care. But now we are left without that asylum that the pilgrims helped create. Where do we get that asylum back? Folks, I don't know. I frankly don't know where we get that asylum back. Because you look out, and I see Trump won over 80% of counties, but I I can't find a county to live in. I really can't. You guys tell me. Where can I go where they focus more on civil and religious liberty than they do on criminal liberties? Then you got Sweden, where the prime minister threw Tegnell under the bus... And he's now moving away from that. Maybe we go to Greenland, Antarctica. I don't know. I don't know. And then we see throughout the country this pattern of how you have the most violent criminals imaginable not serving a day behind bars in the same places where the mayors and governors are promising to throw people behind bars for living and breathing free air. So one thing you can do before anything else to support this show, to support the principles, to support our budding revolution, and to support the Second Amendment and a great American company, is to get yourself a We the People holster. Now, right now, with people expecting Biden to become president and go after our Second Amendment rights, gun sales and ammo sales are through the roof, and it's very hard to get affordable ammo. But I will tell you, you can get an affordable quality holster, starting at just 40 bucks. We the People holsters are custom designed to fit your firearm perfectly. Made right here in the USA. Thousands of options to choose from. 
amazing selection for printed holsters, really cool patriotic slogans on them. Those are a little bit more money, but uh, well worth the message. The propriety clip design allows for you to easily adjust both the cant and ride of your holster so that it fits comfortably and securely. You know, when I got got into this, I really, I was kind of squeamish like other people about carrying or scared. You know, the less you're around firearms, uh, less comfortable you feel. Those We The People holsters, it just, man, it's like you feel naked without it. So, folks, I want you to go to wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR to get yours today. Free shipping, lifetime guarantee. But if you put in promo code CR, you get an extra 10 bucks off. Makes a great Christmas present as well this time of year. Again, wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. Now, folks, when we're looking for where we go for this asylum, the thought struck me as I was catching up on some of the news yesterday when I came back from Pennsylvania, and I saw that Georgia had extended the use of absentee ballot drop boxes for January 15th, for the Senate runoffs on January 5th. The absentee ballot drop boxes. <laughs> It's like Republicans control all three branches there. They have supposedly the most important Senate races of our lifetime that are going to determine whether Democrats have full control of the federal government. And yet, they won't even change what is known to be fraud with election fraud. But again, you look out at that landscape of America. And to paraphrase Joe Biden, I don't see red and I don't see blue. I see a field of brown. Brown, dead grass. See, the difference between a field that is completely dug up and a field that is brown with dead grass is that the former can be planted immediately and you can move forward, whereas the latter, you can't do anything with it. Because it goes in the garbage. I mean, it, nothing nothing will grow. You have to get rid of the dead grass. The GOP is serving is nothing but a field of dead grass as an impediment for that tree of liberty sprouting. They are taking all of the areas where people agree with us on the issues and they're delivering them into the hands of the left. Fascinating article out today or at least I saw it today. I think it came out last week. But over at Personal Defense, they interviewed Nathan Dom. He's a state senator in Oklahoma. Good guy. One of the few good guys. So you can find the article at Personal Defense World where we can't even get a Second Amendment sanctuary legislation passed in the state of Oklahoma. And I've said this before, when Trump became president, so California, New York, New Jersey, these type of places, if you're a liberal, you're living there, you know you're set. Heck, if you're an illegal alien living there, you know you're set. Even if you don't have constitutional rights, you know those phony rights are going to be protected, whereas we do not have a place where we can go to protect our authentic rights as Americans under Biden, and frankly, even under Trump. 
<laughs> I mean, this is still happening. This has been happening the last four years. And here's why. You take a state like Oklahoma. I don't think a Democrat has won a single county since 1996 or 2000. A single county in a presidential election. Republicans will hold, starting this term, an 82 to 19 majority. 82 to 19 majority in the state house and a 39 to 9 majority in the Senate. Those are greater supermajorities than what Democrats hold in the state of California. So you would think Oklahoma would be a place where we could all get up and move to and not deal with BLM and Antifa and jailbreak, crime, COVID fascism, Second Amendment confiscation or anything else that a potential Biden administration was planned for. But no. Nathan Dom is proposing a sanctuary Second Amendment bill, which he's tried four or five times and has failed. He noted a lot of how the feds try to implement these things is through local law enforcement, whether it's county sheriffs, local police departments, and then try to attach funding to that to force those cities and counties to, to do that. So what we could do is make sure that those cities and counties don't accept any federal funding to implement any gun control measures. And, and again, this could totally apply for corona fascism as well. Well, why hasn't it been done? I mean, Democrats passed sanctuary status in a second in, in a state like California and Illinois and elsewhere. Well, Don Spencer, president of the Oklahoma Second Amendment Association, told Personal Defense World, the Republicans have killed it in the state Senate each time. The Republicans are the problem of why you cannot get pro-Second Amendment legislation done in the state of Oklahoma. We have a supermajority in the Senate, a supermajority in the House, and we have the governor's office, so there is no one else to blame. And that's the important thing, folks. Everyone's talking about, oh boy, I mean, everything hinges on this um, Georgia Senate race, You know whether you know Democrats will have a 50-50 majority with the VP, or whether Republicans will have a majority, 52-48 or whatever, uh, 51-49. But I got better for for you. I got a scenario in a number of states where Republicans not only have the Senate, but they have the Senate and the House with super majorities, along with the governorship, along with the Attorney General's office, and they don't do anything with it. And just the opposite, in Oklahoma, I mean... We have not been able to get pro-life legislation passed in Oklahoma since 2016. I think they got a 22-week abortion ban, but everything else they tried to do has failed since uh, the last four or five years. Sometimes it's, it's the state senate, sometimes it's the governor, depending on who it is. But they're all Republican. But the one thing that they have passed is criminal justice deform. So now we have jailbreak and rising crime in Oklahoma the same way we have in California, New York, and Chicago and elsewhere. So this is the problem. The Republican Party is the problem. Right now, we have never had a greater opportunity looking forward. With, on the one hand, having a Democrat president that would likely electrify our base to finally pay attention to the issues and fight back. But on the other hand, he doesn't have a mandate that even Obama had, and Obama fell out of favor pretty quickly with the Tea Party, you know, starting in the spring of 2009. 
Biden doesn't have a mandate to begin with. There's nothing. There is so much we could do. 24 states with the trifecta. 31 states with control of both legislatures. Probably about 20 of them with very strong majorities. Over 80% of the county governments are controlled by, you know, or areas where people voted for Trump. So where are we? Why don't we have a place to go? This is the problem. I mean, the blue areas are irremediably broken. We're not going to get them back, and I think we all understand that. But I think we would be happy with at least a modicum of freedom in the other half of the country. Now is the time to seize that. And if you're waiting for some savior as a person to come along, it's just not going to happen. This is going to have to be fought out one by one. And let me tell you how it's going to play out. It's going to have to play out like this superintendent, Lance Johnson, is doing in Texas. Picture being in North Texas. Counties that Trump carried by 80%. They have a mandate that no human being is allowed to walk around with his face uncovered. Again, a degree of bondage and tyranny that King George never would have entertained. It's from the Texas Tribune. At Peaster Independent School District, 40 miles northwest of Fort Worth, Superintendent Lance Johnson has said masks are optional in a school district, buildings and classrooms. Now, this is their words from the Texas Tribune. They're not. In July, Governor Greg Abbott issued a statewide order requiring that Texans living in counties with more than 20 active coronavirus cases must wear a mask and businesses, buildings open to the public, including schools. And outdoor settings when social distancing is impossible. Well, this guy is not taking it anymore. He's not taking it. The state education agency stated it would not take action because many of the concerns in the complaint appear to be local in nature. So what's very interesting is that forget about the federal government, but even the state government appears not to be taking action because one superintendent stood up. Kudos to Lance Johnson. This is what it's going to take. And I'm still waiting for people to do it. But I'm just telling you, if you're waiting somehow for someone to save us or for the virus to dissipate or for the fascism to dissipate, let me ask you, when in history has this degree of tyranny ever gone away on its own? When has this degree of power ever been relinquished after being seized by people in authority? I have never seen that before. You know what? Yeah, I think, you guys, it's okay to uncover your faces. Yeah, you know what? You can kind of run your businesses the way you want. If you think that's going to happen, man, you need help. This is, the die is cast. Just like those British troops were already among us, King George sent his fleets. 
under General Clinton and Cornwallis and the other guys, you got to fight. You have no choice but to stand and fight. Now, as I've often said, it's going to begin by harnessing some of the legitimate institutions that we still have, like state legislatures in areas where people agree with us, but you have recalcitrant uh, Republicans. But we will be pushing this Declaration of Rights. And we are going to water that liberty tree. So folks, I want to change gears a little bit here as we continue to discuss the political, moral, legal aspects of this this control, this public health control, I figured I'd call upon someone who actually works in public health, is an epidemiologist, to discuss what's going on from a little bit of a different perspective that we see typically in the media, in the academic journals, although there are a lot of studies that are actually debunking what's going on, but we don't hear from them enough. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya was actually with us in May when we thought we knew much less, but we actually seemed to know a lot back then. Not much has changed, but one of the things that has changed is that together with Dr. Kuldruff and Sinatra Gupta, they formed the Great Barrington Declaration a couple months ago where they kind of stepped out on a limb and said, wait a minute, we're epidemiologists, we work in infectious diseases, and we're seeing a little bit of a different narrative here. What we're seeing is that the severity of this virus is really overstated for a lot of people. The threat that this virus poses is limited for the most part to certain people that are known, have known conditions over a certain age. Our ability to really mitigate that is extremely limited, and that we've really seen in recent months that regardless of where you are, whether you have a mask mandate or not, whether you have lockdowns and what type of lockdowns, it seems to come when it comes and it saturates for six to eight weeks. And like clockwork, it moves on. And then, you know, maybe a few months later, it comes back in, fills in the gaps. And depending on how much existing immunity you've built, um, how much you got hit the first time, it's almost a seesaw effect. You'll get hit less the next time. Or if you got hit very little, like in the mountain states in New Mexico and all those states, Wisconsin, that barely had it to begin with. Well, you're going to get it more in the fall and, 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 so, and so on and so forth. And then the cost-benefit analysis. What are we gaining for what are we losing? All these things are so important. And this is really the debate that we should have had early on, but we never had it. It was spawned on by this great declaration um, from these three terrific epidemiologists. So with us today is one of them, Dr. J. Thanks so much for really joining us again. Oh, my pleasure to be here. I can't believe it. Since you were on in May, I mean, I would have never dreamed we'd be in the same position we were back then, that despite everything going on, we'd land in the same place. I thought back then that, look, you know, if these guys are proven right, we're going to see it. We're going to see that for the most part, the virus is going to be kept in check and they'll be able to say look this stuff the mask wearing the lockdowns really seem to work let's continue it because it appears it's working but what has happened is the opposite the same people that pushed it are panicking over the spread that in their own words is is an emergency and in order to deal with it they turn to the very things that we've been doing anyway and it's kind of this bizarre mix of doubling down on the same policies that by their own admission aren't working. 
So could you just kind of, before we go into the trends and where we're seeing things, could you discuss where the Great Barrington Declaration stands, some of the reaction you've had to it until now, positive and negative, and so and, and what are some opportunities you think that the rationalists have in the coming days? Yeah, so if the the we wrote this declaration, as you said, uh, basically to, in response to the 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 science. The science says that for people who are over seventy, this is a pretty deadly disease. You know, ninety five percent survival and five percent mortality is pretty high for for a disease. Um, but for people under seventy, it's more on the order of ninety nine point nine five percent survival. And so you really need different policies to deal with that fact. The lockdowns themselves have been absolutely deadly to the to people under 70. I mean, people used to younger people, people don't have chronic conditions and so on. Um, so, uh, the, you know, we can talk about those lockdown harms, but I think for your listeners that those lockdown harms are all too familiar, obviously economic, but also in addition to that, physical, psychological. So the the declaration says let's open up the world for people under under who who are who are not in this vulnerable condition and and then let's use overwhelming resources to protect the vulnerable this idea of focus protection. Um, it was strangely met with uh, a uh, by by people who who put, you know sort of put forward the lockdown policy with a, with, a, with a very strange misinterpretation that we want to let the virus rip through the population. That is that is. I mean, I don't know how to put it more politely, but that's frankly just a lie, right? The, the goal of the declaration is to protect the vulnerable. That is, with 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 this, with, uh, and we can talk about some of the mechanisms we can use. But actually, the vaccine gives us a perfect mechanism in some sense to protect the vulnerable, and then recognize the lockdowns are harming the non-vulnerable more than the than COVID itself, right? And so then, and lift the lockdown. So that's that's basically the the the. the uh, so we we put the declaration out. It was met with, including Dr. Fauci say, saying things like, "Well, it's, it's unethical to let it rip," which which I agree. Was, you know, we never said that. Um, uh, and then and then um, for the most part, it's, it's I think has spurred some debate uh, in, the, in the in the scientific community. It's also um, led I think to a lot more skepticism about the lockdowns this time around than than, than the previous time in March, which I think is, in that sense, it's good. Uh, although we have not yet won the fight, as you can see, because the lockdowns are still ha uh, apparently the choice of many, gov of many governments, not all, every government, but many governments. Um, so I think, uh, it's, I guess it's mixed. We're, we've, we've won some battles and lost some battles. Now, what are you seeing internally in the field of public health, infectious diseases, epidemiology? What strikes me as so bizarre is this. That if you look at the statements of all the heavy hitters from Fauci, Jerome Adams, the Surgeon General on down, they said things in February and March that were very much in line with the research about respiratory viruses for decades, which is basically that they spread very quickly. They're very contagious. There's not much you can do to really arrest the actual spread of the virus um, you know, obviously they all said masks, certainly the way the civilians wear them and the type of mask they wear aren't really going to help. Um, the notion that you could just kind of hide from it, like you could go in a bomb shelter from a tornado or hurricane was absurd because this is a parasite. It's not a, it's not a natural event that goes through a, a geographical area and then it, and then it moves on. Um, it's going to have to go through a certain number of people before it burns out. They all said this. I mean, everything that people like me are saying as laymen, they said this as public health experts very early on. Now, we were thrown some curveballs. There was a lot of uh, murkiness about the virus, let's say, early on. 
But months later, what surprises me is a lot of them don't seem to want to entertain or re-entertain what they originally said, even though the evidence shows it. So I I want to get your thought on this fall spread and what we're seeing in general with the fact that whether you're a state like South Dakota that had a lot of freedom, whether you're a state like New Mexico that had mask mandates and draconian lockdowns basically almost uninterrupted since March, because you barely had much spread until recently, which is mainly a function of these states being very low population density, it took longer to get there. So they're having it more now, whereas states like New York had most of it before. They have a little bit of an increase now, but nothing like that. It kind of seems to do what it does. I mean, I'm not I, I mean, is there something that us laymen are missing? Is there some amazing tool we have aside from a vaccine that could stop this? Key thing is, can you protect the vulnerable? I think there are things you can do to protect the vulnerable, even short of a vaccine that which we failed to do. But you have to think along those lines. Um, I don't. I think uh, and what you just described is right. What you just described is uh, the, the standard pre-pandemic planning uh, scenarios for how to manage a, a, an epidemic like this, which in many ways were thrown out the window in March. Uh, you know, basically to slow the spread so we don't overwhelm hospital systems. Right. That was the basic argument. Since then, we've had this. I mean, almost near universal. Uh, uh, focus on lockdowns as the only tool to protect the vulnerable. And as we can see, that's, that, that's, that's failed. I think it was an enormous mistake on the part of the public health communities. And, and frankly, it's a lack of imagination. The idea is that, uh, that somehow there's no way to protect the vulnerable other than these, these massive lockdowns. Combined with that, we've had in the public health, sort of the, the, the top of the public health community um, and, and, the, and the public health officials, this absolute blindness to the devastating harms that the lockdowns have caused. Uh, so one in four young adults seriously considered suicide this June. Right? We've, we've closed our schools, basically condemning a, a generation of children to uh, lost education with, with, with all the consequences that has, including um, in a recently published paper in JAMA Open Network, uh, five and a half million light, lost life years because you lose schooling, you make less good decisions about your health, you actually end up with, with like a shorter lifespan. So we've, we've basically given our, our kids a shorter lifespan by five and a half million years and on that. Um, we have had people skip their cancer treatments or uh, skip screening for cancer. We've, we've not treated heart attacks uh, because people are more scared of COVID than heart attacks. I mean, it's it's absolutely devastating that the physical health will be done. And for some reason, the public health community has basically decided that those costs are not worth considering in our policy. It's, it's absolutely mind-boggling to me. It, it, so I think the, the right thing, uh, the right thing to do now is we have to ask, what, what can we do given, uh, I mean, I, in some ways, we're in much better shape than May, and that's in the sense that uh, a, uh, is, is, is that we have a, uh, a vaccine that's coming online that, that looks actually, I think, four now vaccines that look pretty good. Um, the question, but we won't have enough doses to give everyone the vaccine. Like in the United States, I think we'll have some, something like on the order of enough doses for 35 to 50 million people in a couple of months if the FDA approves most vaccines that are available. The question is, how do we use that? How do we use that idea or that, 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 that amazing tool? Um, the, the debate now then in the public health community is 
between people, the, the all the lockdown pro, pro lockdown people are saying, well, why don't we just hunker down for nine months, nine more months until we have enough uh, enough vaccine doses for everybody, and then we can open up. Even then, you're going to need masks. You're going to need all these. You know, we might still need focused lockdowns and so on. I, I don't. I mean, you know, you, you heard Fauci say that, right? Yeah, that's never going to end. Yeah, it's never going to end. Uh, but you know, in nine months, things we can start to think about. But once we have enough doses, we can start to think about opening opening society again. That's one side. The other side, uh, and this is the side I'm on, is look. In, in uh, we have the capacity to protect the vulnerable now to, to some extent. Uh, protect nursing homes better than we do. Protect people who are essential workers, but are but have high risk. You know, di- a 63 year old diabetic postal worker shouldn't be floating around give, you know, being exposed to the virus or, co- or, a, or a clerk at a store. We should give accommodations for them so that they don't have to be exposed. We should, we should work for, uh, to provide sort of uh, temporary living facilities for people living in multi-generational homes that, that where, the, where the, the younger person maybe is exposed to the virus and the older person could live, live outside for a little while temporarily until, uh, until, the, until the risk is cleared. We should use our testing resources to protect the vulnerable. Uh, as soon as the vaccine comes online, we can use it to protect the vulnerable. 50 million doses, say, that's a lot of doses. That, that would be enough to protect basically nearly every elderly person in the United States or nearly every high-risk person in the United States. Um, and then, it, in, in a sense, it's a perfect mechanism for the Great Barrington Declaration. You use the vaccine to protect the vulnerable and open up the rest of society, and we can be done with the epidemic in two months. In other words, you're using the strongest tool you have for where it needs to go, for, for the people that precisely need it. And I think what's also important about what you're saying is this, that the reason why you have to have focused protection, and then if you have a vaccine, really focus the vaccine on those people who need it, is because those people are really, I mean, th- there's a ticking time bomb going on there. To me, when I see families that I know of that locked away their grandparents for, what is it now, by, by now it's about eight months, you know, there's a lot of atrophy going on there. If you don't have a lot going on in your life, you're not getting a lot of stimulation. You're not getting interaction with people. I mean, certainly in the nursing homes, but even outside the nursing homes, that's very scary. Yeah, it's devastating. It's isolation. I mean, I think uh, there's been an increase in, in dementia deaths by 20%, people essentially dying alone. I mean, it's, we aren't meant to be in this kind of isolation that the, the lockdowns are created. And, and somehow we've started to think of them as normal or as humane. They're not humane. They're not normal. They're, they're, they're cruel. Um, and we need to understand that, that they're cruel, cruel to them, look, look in desperately for ways to avoid having to, to use them. So nursing homes, we should protect them, but we, you should understand that, uh, that, that the only need of nursing home residents isn't infection control. There are other needs as well. Um, you know, it's like we need we need connection. We need we need uh, people being able to talk with their families. So we should use testing resources to that end, right? So uh, you know, you can use rapid tests. Well, actually, one thing about the tests is interesting. I think people are reluctant to get them because they they're afraid that they'll get reported to the to the if they're positive to the public health authorities, and then all of a sudden they'll be contact traced and and uh, they have to tell on all their friends. Well, what if we could just use a test? At home, you know, like I, I, before I go visit my mom, I test myself with a cheap uh, antigen test. I don't report it. If it's positive, though, I just stay home. Well, now there's no disincentive to get tested. And I use the information in the way that is most effectively protects my mom. Right? Uh, that, that means we shouldn't be. We, sh- we we basically have thought about all of this, these 
these resources as a, a tool of like public health empowerment uh, on you and sort of restricting. Yeah. Interesting. Empowerment rather as, than control. <laughs> exactly. We should be using it to give people the tools so that they can make good decisions in their lives. That's what public health should be. Instead, we've said, look, uh, we're going to give all our, our liberties and, and our, our, our everything we care about we're going to hand over to the authorities who, who, who then can protect us. Well, they've done a very poor job at protecting us, Daniel. So I, th- I think that's really the key thing here. I think we have to think about the tools we have and use them so that people can make good decisions, help people make good decisions. Dr. J, what's a powerful juxtaposition of what you just said with using testing for empowerment or using it for control is this. So, you know, let's take a place like New York. Shouldn't the governor, in that case Cuomo, say, look, let's have mass testing for visitation of nursing homes so people could visit their loved ones, often husbands and wives being separated and things like that. But no, to my knowledge, at least according to one county executive I had in the show, for the most part, they're still closed. They can't have regular visitation, even outdoors. Yet, where does he focus the mass testing he had mass testing of 15 to 20% of the school age kids. And then the results came back like, you know, there were barely anyone had it. And then he still shut them down, shut down the schools. So could you tell us what you're seeing a little bit with the trends of school children and the contribution or lack thereof of schools to the spread in the, in the communities? So um, the, the, it is absolutely shocking that our schools are closed, Daniel. Absolutely shocking. Uh, schools around the world have opened, and I'll tell you why they've opened. Um, the the uh, uh, even in places that have high spread, uh, schools do not contribute in in any meaningful way to the spread of this disease for for reasons we don't fully understand, but it's abundantly clear in the in the scientific data. Children are less efficient spreaders of the disease should they get it. They die at very low rates. Uh, for instance, in the United States to date, um, that there have been more children who died of the flu this year than of COVID nineteen. Kids are, for thank God, not particularly vulnerable to the worst of this disease. And they also spread the disease less. It's not like the flu. It's not like other colds, uh, you know, so where kids are, are known to spread it to their parents and so on. They are less efficient spreaders of this disease. Um, they, 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 just to so be clear, that means they also are less efficient at spreading it to, to the teachers. If we're in person. At the same time, the in-person schooling is absolutely vital to the learning and, and other health uh, of, of our children. Like children, schools are where abuse is picked up. Schools are where uh, you have, um, you know, you, 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 a large number of poor kids get nutrition. It, it, schools are the main engine for reducing and for addressing economic inequality in the U.S. We, this, the school closures is, is, is the single biggest contributor to inequality I've ever seen in my lifetime. We essentially have decided that we're going to let rich, you know, rich, rich, richer parents they can they can make up they can buy get tutors put their kids in pods fine whereas poor kids can just suffer alone with no essentially uh, you know no school this year because you know okay, okay there's online provided but there's no one really checking school kid young poor kids are failing all across the country um, and so I think. In a sense, it's like it's incredible. It's both the science doesn't science says don't close the schools. They're not actually the engines of the drivers of the epidemic. And then uh, it also says that we're devastating our children by by closing the schools. 
You put that together, I cannot understand why you would use testing resources in among kids who don't actually spread the disease all that efficiently and who don't get very sick if they get the disease. And the only, the main purpose of that is to close the schools. The main, uh, and as you said, we could be using those resources to protect our elderly parents instead. Uh, it's, it makes absolutely no sense. And, and, and what's truly shocking is that since schools have reopened in some places, even where they initially did, the spread. So there's one thing, you know, August, September is kind of maybe low. But then, I mean, they're, they're all saying, I mean, this is a 48 states are a red zone and it's it's spreading everywhere. And all the more so, it's still not a problem in the school. So you really see that dichotomy where it's, um, you know, November was very much a time for spread for this virus. And yet with the schools, the only thing you would see is just a reflection of community spread. So, you know, where, where it was really very virulent, um, more kids on average would have it. But you wouldn't see the clustering in the classes and the grades, like entire grades getting it, which would be indicative of school spread. It was just a reflection of them getting it at home, which they would have gotten it anyway. Um, so what I've noticed that's very interesting is Europe, a lot of the European countries return to very heavy handed tactics, but unlike in America, it seems like the, that's the one thing they're not really doing. They, they do seem to be keeping schools open. Do you think that you guys have actually gotten more traction in Europe than in America? I mean, the, I'm, I'm, feel, I'm feeling a little defeated on, on that. So I don't want to like take a lot of credit because you know the UK reimposed its lockdown. I mean, there are places that have have. Uh, it's it's very clear that 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 the 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 the, the, the set of lockdown policies adopted this time in Europe are less uh, dramatic than they were in the spring. And so I'm think I think part of that is is the is an increasing realization of the, of the harms of the lockdown. If we had complete victory, then they wouldn't have adopted the lockdown. So I, I guess I don't want to take sure. I don't, don't want to do a no, no. But it, but like you're saying, yet. it was less. Whereas in America, they're looking for things they haven't done. Like like here here's what my city mayor, Baltimore city mayor, did. And and again, according to anyone's logic on this issue, it makes no sense. So he's like, all right, now there's an outdoor mask mandate, and I'm thinking, well. Okay, so implicit in your uh, panicked speech leading up to the edict and then the edict itself is that clearly it's spreading a lot. Now, you've had a mask mandate indoors for six months, so clearly you're saying that it's not really working. So you're trying to find something that you haven't already done, and there are very few things that you haven't already done. So you see outdoors. So that would be suggesting that outdoor transmission is primarily driving what's going on now. I mean, that that would be the only way to make sense of it. And it, it, it's almost like, t tell me if I'm wrong here, but just looking at the psychology of the politicians and maybe uh, some of the scientists advising them, is that it's an act of desperation. That basically, we live in a society where unlike during the 1957 uh, Asian flu epidemic, where they clearly recognized early on there wasn't much they can do to you know stop the actual spread. We live in a society where there's a solution for everything. There's an app for everything. There's technology for everything. And it seems like to me that people cannot cope with the notion that there are just certain challenges that you're going to have. Um, avoiding that, unfortunately, is just not an option. And we haven't discovered a way to get around that other than finding a a virus, uh, um, I mean, a vaccine, and then in the meantime, focusing your protection on the people who need it the most, is is that the psychology there that they just feel like they got to grasp onto the only tools they think they know they have? Yeah, I think, there, I think there's a lot to that. There's a lot. There is a sense that 
um, uh, and and actually what they've turned to is 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 beyond that that desperation with with these sort of uh, you focus on policies that haven't worked and doubling down on those kind of policies. Um, they started to turn on the public to blame the public for not adopting the 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 uh, uh, with enough zeal the the the, the kind of uh, the kind of policies that they want the public the behaviors that they want them to do. I mean, it's a sort of anti-public health, right? I mean, you don't blame the public when you foist uh, on the public a set of of of, uh, of recommendations that the, you know the public can't possibly meet because it'll ruin their lives. Um, so I, I have another kind of analogy to this. You know, if, if during the Vietnam War, uh, it, it it kept going, right? We kept throwing more and more of, of our young people into the war, saying, "Look, it's just we just need one more. We just we just, we just do this strategy. We just we just double down on the strategy." But the failure was in thinking. The failure was in this this line altogether. We have a, a, an evidently failed policy, and instead of rethinking that policy, I'm not. I don't. I actually think there is a solution to this in some sense. I mean, it won't get zero harm because that's not possible, but it can have much less harm than we currently have. Um, but rather than changing our, the, the policy toward that, which we're admitting essentially that we've chosen the wrong policy to start with, they've doubled down. They said, okay, let's keep doing this. If we just try hard enough, this will finally work. And I think what we're seeing is, and what you're describing is, uh, the, 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 the last basically froze of a, of, of a desire to like justify that intellectual structure on a policy that has failed. Right? They can't admit they failed, and so they're doubling down on it. Kind of like Afghanistan as well. I mean, it, it's just when you don't define a mission – and you're like, well, there's bad guys in Afghanistan. Well, I mean, there's kind of always going to be bad guys in there. And that that's just not that's not an outcome you could achieve. And, and that's the thing. Well, there's a respiratory virus circulating. I, I found another case. And then, you know, that gets into the whole definition of cases and the CT cycles and all this stuff. And part of what people are struggling with is that they've never had a scenario where they couldn't trust data. And when you're looking at what's going on, when you look at the Danish mass study, how three journals rejected it, and then a fourth one, it looks like they had to really couch their language, and then the media reports it in a way it wasn't even um, published, and you know, you guys get censored, everything I put out gets censored. I have never seen this before. I have never seen – like typically, you know, if you put up um, a beheaded, bloody – figure or something maybe social media would censor it although often they wouldn't with isis and al-qaeda but here it's like you know you you question certain data you're like well no that's like violence or something you're not allowed to say that and that have you ever seen this in your career this degree of censorship no it's it's absolutely shocking i mean it's, it's anti-scientific it actually i wouldn't just say even be even be before you say it's anti-scientific basically the 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 substrate of science requires that we be able to discuss openly disagreements, right? And we can talk about data. I might be wrong about something. Show me, and you show me data, I'll change my mind, right? That, that's, that's normal science. Instead, what we have is this absolutely amazing, sick environment where we can't discuss disagreements without being, you know, sort of vilified. Uh, you know, like we started the conversation discussing um, the, 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 uh, reception that we're granting declarations like the, the reception has been essentially by by many many people on uh, the pro on the lockdown side at, at essentially just to, to to distort it beyond all recognition in order to not argue with it 
right? So they say it's just let it rip, even though no one, no one who's written or associated with the ballot bank declaration has said let it rip. I mean, that's just that's a that's what Dr. Fauci says about it, right? Why is he saying that? Because he doesn't want to discuss it. He just wants to dismiss it. Um, that's not science. You can't have a scientific discussion when you don't have a good faith engagement with the other with with counter arguments. I mean, science absolutely requires that. And we just I mean, I'm not saying everybody because uh, there, there, I think there are some people on the uh, on tour who are pro lockdown that uh, that tr have tried to engage in good faith. But many, many, many of them have not, including the most prominent people. So what scares me about where they're headed, you mentioned the word public health and that that word kind of scares me a little bit. To me, health always involved an individual on an individual level going to see a doctor and you come up with a diagnosis and then a prognosis, what to do based on his unique situation. The concept of public health really scares me and it always scared me, but now it really does scare me because what I'm basically seeing is a premise like this. We could determine that this is what's going on. This is what needs to happen. And you, your existence, your very existence of breathing free air, your very presence in a certain area is a threat to us. And even if there's nothing evident, like you're not coughing or anything, you're still a threat. And therefore, there is no limit to what we cannot, to what we can propose to do about you. That is a very scary proposition my governor here in maryland said you you don't have a constitutional right to go without a mask it's like it's like now they're saying and he said going without a mask is like drunk driving i mean that that is a very scary thing i mean even if you you're supportive of masks in general like that's a very scary premise i mean let, let's just take something that we know from a scientific from a medical standpoint is a problem and that's obesity i think no one would disagree that obesity is really the predominant factor in a in a lot of health problems ranging from heart to diabetes um and and a whole cascading effect of other uh personal health problems that people would have but i mean you can't dehumanize people you can't i mean i could say look i mean i'm i'm you know, I'm not overweight. I think we should install cameras and limit people's intake. And look, I mean, look, Dr. J, you can't deny. I mean, the strain on the hospitals, You, I, I could produce a bunch of data on that. That That is very sound and much more established than some of what they're proposing to stop the spread of a respiratory virus for the first time in history. Uh, you know, stopping obesity really would um, stop uh, attenuate the strain on the hospitals. It would alleviate some of the public health strains. How do we stop this runaway train of public health and how do we control it? It's funny because it's funny I've always thought of public health as a tool of empowerment, I thought as a, as a tool for good, to give people good information and the tools to act on it. I mean, it's not supposed to be a mechanism of population control. What we're seeing with public health now is a distortion of what public health is meant to be, right? Because so, there are... Um, there are things that that are outside of our control individually that 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 we ask we 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 ask legitimately uh, people like so for instance like doing research on what what good health practices are right you don't you don't ask individuals people to do that for each for themselves we 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 entrust scientists to do that and and then have that information conveyed accurately so that we can act on it uh, or not act on it depending on our circumstance right 
public health is supposed to, re- to respect those kinds of individual rights because those are really critically important for being for, for public health, right? We don't shame people who have disease. That's a absolute fundamental principle of public health because if you shame people who have disease, all of a sudden we create this outcast. We yes. that's not good for public yes. health. I mean, um, I think I think the key thing. So the key thing is not that. Uh, and I tell your audience, it's not that public health shouldn't exist. It should exist, but it should be its its best version. And what we're seeing now is is very far from its best version. It's a, it, in, in some sense, it's not really public health, right? We've, we've we've decided that infection control is the only thing that's important for human existence, and that we will overturn heaven and earth to 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 get there. And then, of course, we haven't got there. Um, I mean, I think that that is a perversion of public health, not actually public health. Well, I think I think of smoking, you know, for many generations, people were smoking, they didn't, you know, see a problem with it. And there was a public health education campaign to teach people, hey, look, you know, here, here are the problems on it. And if you make a convincing case, people on their own will want to abide by that because they don't want to die. I mean, it's it's kind of natural. But if you convince people that living is tantamount to smoking or drunk driving, I mean, just just regular living so l- let me give another great example, I, you know, and I, I'm guilty of this and everyone I know, including medical professionals are with the masking. So what do we do? It's all a tool of public shame now. So you just grab something out of your pocket, cross contaminate it a hundred times, leave it sitting in the hot car for five days and put it on when you need. What anyone would agree that to the extent there would be any efficacy, if you could find it, it would be, you know, in a fresh one where you wash your hands afterwards, discard of it properly afterwards, really wear it properly, wear the right type. Um, so now we're just like, you know, putting it on the table, putting it here. You you could do anything you want because it's a tool of public shame. It, it's, it's almost like a bumper sticker. So you wear it in a way that any sane person, like I have seen specialists that I know, I've seen doctors just grab it out of their pocket. I'm like, didn't you learn about your field of surgery? Your field, like, I, I don't, I mean, I know that. Like, and, it, and it's so yeah, absurd. Too. Just a full, full, full confession. I do that. I mean, how, how could you not? Like, I, I can't. Uh, I'm, I'm not in a hospital where I can go go grab a new one right there. It's 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 just not feasible. Where where the way I live my life to to uh, follow those protocols to the T. So I use it uh, exactly the way you say uh, both both all, all to to like comply with the law, but also you know if I'm in front of someone who's really scared about this, I want to I want to respect their. I don't want to scare them, so I'll put put the mask on, right? So I mean I think, um, uh, but but I'll take it out of my pocket because I just have it for that purpose. Um, I agree with that. I mean, I think it's it's a it's a we it's now like a, rather than like an actual tool for public health, it's a it's it's like this. It's either a a a, a signal to others that you that you 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 follow team science, or or it's a a mechanism yep. to try to make people feel comfortable. Or it's, a, it's a mechanism to avoid being shamed. I mean, it's it's a lot of things in addition to potentially a tool for infection control. I mean, look, it might be a, a, a mild tool for infection. I don't know. I mean, like, there's really not very good randomized evidence on it. What, um, there's that mass study which found enough uh, statistically significant finding, but we don't really have a big, good body of evidence one way or the other on it, really. Um, well, we, we don't, but, but Dr. J, what we do know is that by definition – if you are around people for a long period of time, someone working a shift in in a, in a in a in a store or a school, you're there six, seven, eight hours. You're wearing a comfortable cotton mask. I mean, that's the majority of people do by <laughs> definition, and and that really there is pretty significant research yeah, on. I mean, 
not something where you see, look at the evidence that's overwhelmingly going to work. It's not like a parachute jumping out of an airplane. It's not anywhere near that. Um, so, but, and the cost of it is what, we, what we've been talking about. The cost of it is essentially this social division that we've created around this. Like if it were like a parachute jumping and, and if it was a little bit inconvenient, then I'd say, yeah, look, uh, the balance of that and says, let's do it. Let's quit smoking. Let's, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a lot of evidence that it really is good for you. And I'd be out there saying this loudly. I'd look at the evidence. I mean, there's mixed evidence, right? Sometimes, I mean, it's like there's some, even in that Danish mask study you mentioned, there was actually a very slight benefit of mask wearing. Right? I think like 2.1% of the non-mask wearers, randomized non-mask wearers got infected and 1.8% of the mask wearers got, not statistically significant, mind you, so I can't really say that the difference is statistically meaningful. But, you know, that's one study. There should be like 30 of these studies before we decide, yeah, this, there's enough evidence to suggest you should do it. And then, and then it should be a tool of empowerment. Look, it's a really good idea to wear it. If here's the evidence. Not if you don't and wear here's it. Here's how here's, you do here's, it. Here's, here's what you should do. And, 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 yeah. and here's a scenario where it helps. But instead, what I'm seeing is I know people that have had kidney transplants and they got, you know, heart, kidney, uh, diabetes, and they'll, they'll go indoors with people and they'll wear the mask and they think that it helps. And I'm like, you know, for all my talk of everyone thinking I'm the guy who's lax about it, I actually would have advised the guy not to go indoors with people um, because that has become it's almost like if I say, hey, there's a lot of evidence that smoking is harmful. But if but then and then I convince people that if you don't smoke, then alcohol poisoning is no longer a danger or something like that. Like, yeah. you know, like somehow that that's a panacea. And again, I think like you're saying, that's the difference between public health as empowerment versus a tool of control. If it's a tool of control. So, yeah, I mean, as long as you show you're a good person in their mind and you're wearing it and whatever type and whatever circumstance and whatever your risk is, you're good to go when it's it's not that simple. And I, I just like t to me, what's what's very harmful is and I think you're going to see this, too, is a lot of public health advice that let's say is legitimate and is built on scientific consensus will probably be ignored by a lot of people because they're not going to know what to believe anymore. Yeah. I think the harm there is really, really bad. I'm, 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 I'm worried about it because there, like, as you say, like there is good advice, but like how, who's going to trust uh, the very top of the public health profession when it's very, it's really clear that they're blind to the harm they're causing. They just they and, and I don't know how to, how else to put it. Like we talked about the devastating lockdown harms. How can how can people uh, at, at the very top of this of of, of public health profession, Dr. Fauci and so on, not see it or not at least not incorporate it fundamentally into their policy recommendations? Well, you know, our our founders had a lot of wisdom, and typically, if something is not constitutional and it's not legal, it's often not a good idea. And that's the thing. If, if you are not able to implement your ideas through the legitimate legal means we have of doing so in this country, there's often a reason for it. And it's not good. And that's the thing. And, and real uh, public health, like you're saying, that's, that's empowering. Um, the body of evidence should speak for itself. And, you know, people are very um, scared. for and, and I just, you know, I, I know we're over time, but there's one other thing. I'd be remiss not to get your take on what bothers me is some of what they're not saying. So they're saying a lot, yeah, the mass, they're saying a lot, they're saying a lot about the lockdowns, but there seems to be, you want to talk about 30 studies, just the evidence around the efficacy of vitamin D and some other natural 
supplements that they're, they're, they're not, not to say it's 100% protection for 100% of people, but they really seem to be associated with a much stronger immune system, much better outcomes. Why don't we hear any talk about that? Oh, I think people are starting to hear that, right? I mean, I think if you, if you re- read a, a people uh, like even the medical press, they're trying to say, uh, what can you do practically? And vitamin D does feature that. Actually, I take, I take vitamin D. I'm like, I try to get sun. I think uh, the evidence is, I mean, it's not overwhelming, but it's pretty good. Um, and so I think it's worth, I mean, what's, and there really isn't a ton of harm. Yep. It's, it's, it's actually like math in that sense. So like, why not? Um, but I think, uh, I think that, that I agree with you. I think, again, that's, that's a tool for empowerment. Right, you convey the the the, the evidence uh, and th- and tell people here's something practical you can do, um, in a way that doesn't divide. That's great. That's that's good public health. We really should be more of that. I agree with you. Exactly, and and I mean it's telling people shut up, do this, and you won't get it. I mean that that's a bill of goods that's a very tough to sell because it's very hard to say you're not going to get this virus. You have to assume you're going to get it. If you don't get it, you don't get it. But here is how you could better prepare your immune system. And I, I mean, I just it is shocking that eight months later, an average person doesn't seem to have many places to go to find that information. Like like we should know, hey, here are the nascent signs that you start seeing. This is a problem. This is not. Instead, it's all like panic. Shut up. Do this. You're going to kill people. Don't get it. But and well, shame, right? Panic but, and shame, right? But, but, and if you get I, it, I understand that. I understand that in March, I mean, I don't understand all that, but I mean, just the part that like, we thought it was kind of a little bit more rare at the beginning. I mean, it was more rare. Okay, so just, you know, do this and you're not going to get it. But I mean, everyone agrees. Everyone is getting it. I mean, I know so many people that were, quote, careful, if you know what I mean. Like, I'm being careful yeah. and they got it. And and just like, you know, you can't say I'm being careful. I'm not going to get a cold or a flu. I mean, you could do things that you think you're maybe less likely to get it, but I mean, you can never assume you're not going to get a respiratory virus. I mean, unless you're really never around Daniel, people. I, I've, uh, my estimate right now is that somewhere between 75 and 100 million people in the United States have got it. Uh, and probably, it's, let's say, between 40% of it, uh, of, of those folks probably didn't even know they had it. Oh my gosh, I was going to ask you that. seventy Because for months I was saying 60 to 70 million, I thought. So you're thinking it's between 75 and 100 million. Yeah, I think it's between 70 and 100. But we know from the seroprevalence data. Seroprevalence is a studies that, uh, that that look for antibody evidence of the disease in the population. Um, and so there have been not 50, 50 or more, actually, I think I've lost count of how many seroprevalence studies there are worldwide. And the, what we know is that that the in uh, worldwide, the, uh, the infection survival rate is something on the order of 99.8%. Uh, or under 70, as I said earlier, 99.95%. Um, for for people uh, in the United States, I think it's something on the order of of ninety nine point six seven percent, something like that. <laughs> All right, so let's just take that ninety nine point six seven percent number. We know there's been two hundred fifty thousand deaths. You can just basically divide, and what you end up with is there had to have been, let's say that's that point uh, that's ninety nine point six seven. There had to have been seventy five million people infected to get the two hundred fifty thousand deaths. 75 million. Uh, now, if the, if the infection fatality rate has actually come down because we were better at treating it and so on, sure. let's say it's 0.22, like, just like the worldwide number, well, I mean, that gets you roughly in the, in the ballpark for 100 million cases. 
That's 30%. That's 30% of the country. So you're looking people in the eye and saying, you know, I remember seeing at the presidential debate, oh, you know, 8 million people have gotten it. I'm like, well, I could do you much better. I think a lot more people have gotten it. And that's kind of the point. It's just so bizarre. I never would have thought we would be this far along eight months later and they're still acting like it's this rare thing. And 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 that's, you know, it's all about empowerment. You you can't tell people you're not going to get it. I mean, I know people that have barely gone anywhere and they've gotten it. Um, and like you noted, you might not even know if you've gotten it. And isn't it true that even if you test negative for antibodies, particularly if you got an asymptomatic case, your body might not have needed to produce them, right? No, you'll still produce them. It's just that it fades over time. Like three to six months later, you probably, the antibodies are gone. Um, your body still remembers how to fight it with T cells and other sure. other other immune mechanisms. So it's not like you you're you're still protected to some degree, uh, but you're the, but the antibody evidence is gone. So you won't you won't you won't be able to take an antibody test to know that you had it. But you did you had it. Um, I, I think that the majority like almost almost what I said forty percent of people will get it get no symptoms at all. Uh, none. They they might have a, at worst a mild cold. But what we see in uh, the news is the worst cases. And the older people who get it, they tend to get the, the worst cases with this horrible viral pneumonia. That's what we visualize the disease as. What we should visualize the disease as typical. The typical thing is a mild cold. Yes. Right. So it's it's. Uh, I mean, I think the, the, the there's this disjunction between what's the worst case that could happen and what does happen. And I, I'd say, like, I think we can actually do things. We can protect the vulnerable if we just think to do it. Instead, we said, let's stop everyone from getting it as a way to protect the vulnerable. And it's clear that it has failed, that that does not work as a strategy to protect the vulnerable. We can do it. We can't. I think we actually can work to better protect the vulnerable. Um, but we just we need to we need a very, very different policy to do it. Empowerment over control. And that's the whole story of the pilgrims of Thanksgiving coming to a new frontier, a new land to escape tyranny individualism, empowerment, knowledge, and truth. I mean, this is what we strive for. Dr. J, thanks so much for joining us again today, uh, giving us this really long presentation. Our audience loves just to hear the truth. People are are clamoring to find accurate information on this. Please keep us updated as, uh, as time goes on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, thanks for having me. And folks, I really wonder how many other people are like him in this field. I mean, I, I don't understand how they can't see this, how they can't take a look at the cost-benefit analysis and understand, like, dude, you yourself are saying that it's spreading despite what you're doing. So it's got to stop. But again, I think, you know, you know the answer to all this. It's not about a disagreement over science. There might be some minor disagreements here and there, but fundamentally it's about control. And we will have the control. We'll have the control after the vaccine. We're going to have the control Forever, because frankly, this has nothing to do with the virus. They've been trying to use other things as a pretext to do the same stuff and control us, whatever it is. It could be the weather. It could be a virus. It could be anything. It's control. And I thought he gave a very um, good explanation of public health. I mean, it's about empowerment. Hey, you know, you should know this is good for your health. This is not. And if it if the veracity of what you're saying is so clear, then people will want to follow that. Um, but doing it through shame is a recipe through, for, for disaster. And again, that's why the Constitution places limits on their power. And that is why it is up to you and I to go and enforce those constraints on their power. 
We're going to have to think of some uh, innovative ways of doing that in the coming days. Send me your comments, questions, and concerns to dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Till tomorrow, thank you for listening, and God bless you all.